Welcome to the SOSV Climate Tech Summit podcast series. I am the AI voice of Ben Joff, a partner at SOSV and co-curator of the summit. In this episode, three startup founders discuss the importance of critical minerals in the energy transition and how their companies are working to secure access to these minerals. One focuses on lithium extraction from brine, another on refining copper ore with electricity, and the last one on extracting minerals from the ocean floor. They also discuss the challenges of the current supply chain and the need for innovative and sustainable solutions. This conversation is moderated by Andy Golick, principal at Hacks, SOSV's startup program focused on hard tech. Thanks, and welcome to the SOSV Climate Summit and this discussion on critical minerals and the role they will play in the energy transition. I'm Andy Golak, and I'm a principal on the team at SOSV and the moderator for this discussion. Critical minerals are one of those topics that doesn't immediately come to mind when you think about the energy transition. However, once you start to dig in, you realize how important access to these minerals is to the energy transition. And then you start to notice that this discussion is happening everywhere. It's a nuanced topic with a complex global supply chain we're fortunate to be with the founders of three companies who are aiming to secure access to these critical resources so we can transition our global energy systems. David Snydecker is the CEO and co-founder of Lilac Solutions, a company developing a way to extract lithium from brines without the use of evaporation ponds. John Vardner is the CEO and founder of Stillbright, a company developing a new technology to refine copper ore with just electricity as a primary input. And full disclosure, Stillbright is an SOSV portfolio company. Renee Grogan is the co-founder and a director of Impossible Metals. Impossible Metals is looking to extract mineral-rich nodules from the ocean floor for processing on land and integration into our supply chains. So let's just jump right into it. John, your company is working on refining copper. What got you interested in copper and why should we care about it? Well, the reason we should care about it is that copper is essential for the clean energy transition. Solar and wind power require about two to five times as much copper compared to traditional energy sources. And similarly, electric vehicles require two to five times as much copper compared to traditional vehicles. Uh, I'll, I'll throw a statistic that'll, that'll blow your mind, Andy, but in the past 3000 years, the world has produced 700 million tons of copper. So that's the entire course of human history. And then in the next 27 years, we need to produce 1.4 billion tons of new copper. So we need twice as much copper that the world has ever produced in the next 27 years in order to reach net zero by 2050. And what got me into copper is it's what I worked on during my PhD. Um, I completed my PhD at Columbia where I was studying vanadium flow battery technologies and I was studying copper production. And I was in a really unique position to combine these two different projects and start using this vanadium flow battery technology as a new way to produce copper. And that you know, the, the results that we saw there really motivated me to to start Stillbright. And, and your technology is going to help us be able to meet that demand? Yeah. Um, well, our technology is looking to extract copper from currently non-viable sources. So we want to increase the amount of copper that can be produced in the world using new technology. And, and David, uh, your company, Lilac Solutions, it's working on a, a new technique to extract lithium from brines. Um, what, what got you into to lithium and, and why does it matter to the energy transition? So I got into lithium through the battery space. I did a PhD in materials engineering and focused on engineering next generation lithium ion batteries. And through that work, I 
saw how difficult it was to make batteries even a little bit better and how impossible it was to replace lithium for electric vehicles. And so given the fundamental necessity of having lithium for the electric vehicle industry, um, I started Lilac to address that critical gap in the supply chain. Lithium supply is the essential part of battery manufacturing that's starting from the smallest baseline. So lithium production will need to ramp up by approximately 20x over the next 20 years. Uh, that type of growth is not common to the mining space. And new technologies are going to be essential for the lithium industry to ramp production uh, and do it in a environmentally viable way where these projects can actually be permitted and built. And so we've developed a new ion exchange technology to ramp production of lithium and dramatically increase the amount of lithium that can be produced from different sites around the world and doing so in an environmentally friendly way. And, and Renee, your, your company is taking a, a bit of a different approach from, from the other two here. Um, so why should we think about the ocean as a source of critical minerals? Yeah, it's a really great question and, and sometimes controversial one. Uh, why we should think about it, I guess, first is, is the nature and the size of the resources that are on the ocean floor. So for polymetallic nodules, which are a kind of potato-shaped rock that just sits on the sediment uh, in about 5,000 metres of water depth, uh, that resource has more nickel contained in it than the rest of the world's terrestrial resources combined. So it's an extremely large resource for one of the critical minerals. There are, uh, they also contain copper and uh, cobalt and some rare earths. So having a look at uh, where we access our minerals from today on land uh, is my background. So I've done um, been in the terrestrial mining world for about 20 years, focused on permitting and uh, development of new mines mostly from an environmental and, and regulatory perspective. And so when I started to have a look at what the supply chain looked like and what the demand was looking like, pretty much how John described it, these, these extraordinarily high numbers, and starting to think about, okay, where are those new deposits coming from? Where are the high-grade resources? Where are the easy-to-access resources? Uh, the truth is most of them have been mined. So we still do have vast terrestrial deposits, but they're, they're predominantly in pretty challenging places. And so having a look at what's on the ocean floor is certainly a part of that picture. But then the context, as, uh, as also Dave mentioned, is how do you do that responsibly? How do you do that in an environmentally safe and responsible manner? And how do you do it um, in order to get it permitted? So they're the questions that we're trying to answer with our technology. And, and you started talking about the supply chain a, a little bit there, but um, with your company, will you be taking these nodules from the ocean floor and integrating them into existing supply chains? Yeah, so Impossible is developing two forms of technology. The first is the robotics, the underwater robotics vehicles that can harvest the nodules from the ocean floor. Uh, and then the second part is the bioextraction, which is the mineral processing side. Uh, in order to extract those, particularly those three resources from the nodules, and then, yes, integrate them into existing supply chains. All right, thank you. And uh, on the topic of supply chains, John, I think it'd be useful for this discussion to understand what the current supply chain is for copper and, and how Stillbright fits into that paradigm. Yeah, so um, there's copper reserves all around the world, and in every single continent there are copper reserves. 
in, in the U.S., for instance, the, the largest copper mines are in Arizona, Utah, and Nevada. The one, one big challenge is that the construction of new smelters is currently prohibited in the U.S. and much of the world. So while there are copper reserves here, we cannot refine the copper domestically, at least, you know, through the construction of new smelters. So what we're looking to do is we're looking to enable places such as the U.S. or I'd say at the mine site to, to refine their own copper uh, rather than transporting the material overseas where the construction of new smelters is permitted and eliminate that the carbon emission associated with the transportation of this copper concentrate material all around the world. David, what, what is the supply chain for lithium today and, and how does Lilac Solutions fit into that? So 10 years ago, most lithium production came from brine resources. These are deposits of salt water uh, found out in the desert underground. Um, but over the last 10 years, 90% of new lithium projects to come online have been from hard rock projects. Now, hard rock projects have closed the near-term supply gap, but new hard rock projects are coming online with lower lithium grades and substantially higher production costs. Furthermore, when you add up all the hard rock resources in the world, there's just not enough lithium in those resources to fully supply the EV industry. So the industry needs to get back into developing lithium brine resources because that's where a large majority of the world's resources are and they can be fun fundamentally low cost, but only if you have the right technology. And I, I assume you think your technology is that right technology. Yeah, we've developed a new technology to produce lithium that uses 50 times less fresh water and a thousand times less land compared to the competing technologies. And by removing that massive impact on land and water, we can ramp up production uh, to previously unimaginable levels while maintaining a very minimal environmental footprint on site. So that's the type of environmental performance that's needed to move these large scale lithium projects forward and supply the EV industry with the lithium they need. Yeah, I think, you know, while we're talking about the, the topic of regulatory and permitting, I guess it'd be great, David, to understand what what the role is of the regulatory agencies and in a company like Lilac Solutions. Yeah, well, the, the regulatory agencies play two major roles in the lithium space globally, and it's a bit different in every country and in every province. But generally, the first role is the mineral rights. So in each country, there are different rules for who can develop the mineral rights. In some places, that is open to private developers. In other places, that's open to governments. Um, and government partnerships are required to advance production. Um, so that's the, that's the first level of regulation. And we play in... Um, Every major you know, lithium brine um, region globally, we're flexible to work with a local style of development and partner providing technology to whoever owns the resource, whether that's a government or a private developer. The second role of regulation is environmental permitting. Now, historically, 
lithium production has required um, either large open pit mines, if you're doing hard rock, or if you're doing brine, large evaporation ponds, and large amounts of water for uh, certain new technologies that were um, first implemented 30 years ago. Uh, so they were new 30 years ago, but in the last 30 years, they haven't scaled because of the very large freshwater requirements. So one of the roles of the regulators, particularly for lithium brine projects in South America, where most of the world's lithium is located, is protecting local water resources. These projects are located out in the desert at some of the driest locations on earth. And there are communities that have been living at these sites for hundreds of years, living off um, the land, uh, farming, raising animals, um, and recently um, operating in the tourism industry. Now, uh, those local livelihoods are essential for those communities. They're essential for local regulators to protect. So when lithium developers come in with plans to build uh, thousands of acres of evaporation ponds to remove water from the basin and evaporate it to the atmosphere, that can have a substantial impact on local livelihoods. So that the role of the regulator has been to protect the environment locally and ensure development is done in a way that's responsible for the local communities. And that means protecting land and water while creating those jobs that, that people really do want. And Renee, your company is dealing with water as well um, in the permitting process. You know, what, what does that regulatory pathway look like as you think about extracting a resource from the ocean floor? Yeah, it's a, it's a complex and challenging um, environment, but there are, there's a couple of really critical factors. The first is that the regulatory pathway is different whether you're in a country's exclusive economic zone or in international waters or what we call the high seas. So 200 nautical miles from the coastline of, of any country is typically its exclusive economic zone. And so if the resources are inside of that zone, then you're dealing with domestic regulators in, in much the same way as you would with terrestrial mining. Uh, so for deposits such as inside the Cook Islands, there's an extremely large nodule deposit. So that's governed by the Cook Islands uh, domestic agencies. Once you go into international waters, the regulator is a body called the International Seabed Authority which was established under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And the ISA plays the role of both regulators that Dave was referring to. So the Department of Mines, so to speak, and the Department of Environment. Uh, so those regulations are still being drafted in international waters, uh, but in domestic waters, we see different levels of progress. Some countries have those regulations in place. Uh, some are working towards them. Uh, some are, are not considering them at all. Uh, so it depends a little bit on the political landscape, but also on the value of the resources that you find inside exclusive economic zones. Okay. Switching gears a little bit here, you all are working on problems in a traditional industry, mining, something we've been doing for a long time, but with new technology solutions. So I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about what the talent looks like for that you need for these companies. David, I'd love to start with you. Um, any comment on you know, how you think about hiring talent into a company like Lilac Solutions? Yeah, for, for Lilac, I would say our hiring strategy has been bimodal. There's sort of two major pools of talent that we tap into. In the early days of the company, um, we got set up here in the Bay Area because we had access to phenomenal 
research and product development talent. Uh, we're right down the road from UC Berkeley, which is one of the strongest chemical engineering programs in the world. Uh, we've hired probably 30 plus engineers at UC Berkeley and, and generally recruiting, you know, bright, young, passionate engineers, um, often recently graduated in the early days of the company. As we perfected the technology and moved into manufacturing, project execution, and field operations, we needed a much different set of skills to get that work done and much more emphasis on experience rather than the research creativity. So over the last few years, we've primarily been recruiting from mining, chemicals, and oil and gas. Um, as you imagine, there's um, slightly less representation here in the Bay Area from the mining industry. <laughs> and so we've certainly looked globally for that talent. And we've been fortunate to find some super talented executives and managers who have come to us from some of the biggest engineering companies in the world, the biggest chemical companies, um, and people who have built $20 million petrochemical projects and some of the biggest mine sites in the world. Um, so it's been really exciting and energizing for both the R&D side and the projects and operations side to come together and do this with a new technology in the lithium industry. Um, I think both sides really energize each other and, and uh, everybody learns a lot. Well, I'm a chemical engineer too, so I love to hear that you're tapping into that, that talent network. Um, Renee, you, again, your company is uh, unique um, in sort of what you're doing. I'd love to hear how you think about hiring talent for something uh, like you're doing with uh, uh, you know, extracting a resource from the ocean floor. Yeah, sure. So we have two sort of separate uh, categories of, of specialists that we hire. The first is in the underwater robotics world. And then the second is, is in the mineral processing. And, and we use a form of mineral processing that uses bacteria. So it's we have a, a really large uh, team of amazingly uh, talented uh, microbiologists who drive that work. Uh, so when we look at the hiring strategies for both of those teams, we're looking for three things. Firstly, the technical knowledge and the expertise. Uh, these are really specific fields. Um, they're challenging fields to work in. And so we're looking for really bright minds in that space. The second thing we're looking for is passion. Um, we, we are really focused on delivering sustainably sourced metals. And so what we find is that by being really upfront about that objective and that mission, we, we do recruit and find a team that, that are really passionately committed to what we're trying to achieve. Uh, so they bring their heart to work as well as their brain, which we love. And then the third thing is this, is this ability to be okay with doing something that's really, really difficult. So we're called impossible metals for a reason. We're doing something that's not been done before. And we're really challenging the team to um, try, fail, learn, try, fail, learn, and, and to progress in that way. And one of the things we've found is that by really encouraging that methodology um, and creating that safe space, we've been able to achieve some really extraordinary things on both the robotics and, and the bio side. Uh, and I think that that creates a culture of safety uh, and also innovation and, and passion. And so that's 
they're the three things we look for and, and we, we have a, an ambition to bring those people into an organisation and make it as dynamic as it can be um, so that we can, yeah, achieve something that's right now impossible. Thank you. And John, I would love to hear your thoughts on, on hiring as well. I know Stillbright is less than a year old, so you're still very early in your journey. would love to hear how hiring has gone. Well, our, our approach to hiring has been largely to recruit from, from academia. It sounds like not, not too different than what you were doing, Dave. And, and for us, there's a few different benefits to that. One is that the talent is so enthusiastic and engaged to work on this project. And a few of them actually had direct experience on our particular project prior to joining, which was a huge plus. And we have a lot of creative ideas, which is something I, that I think is important for an early stage company. And I definitely see the progression that you're talking about, Dave, where eventually we will need to hire more talent directly from, from the industry. And I do think mining and oil and gas are all great places to recruit from down the line. Yeah, I think that the other thing is the mining industry is, as, as you said, Andy, at the start, a very old and established industry. Uh, and people don't often think about it as being an innovative space, but it actually is full of, firstly, very intelligent uh, people, but also people who see the way that mining has been done in the past and are really interested and committed to the idea of being able to transition it to a more sustainable outcome. I don't think I've ever met anybody in the mining space who had the view that, oh, the way we've always done it is the way we should do it forever, um, particularly the generations that are coming up now um, as, as sort of younger people move into mining. There is definitely an appetite for saying, okay, we all know we need the critical metals. How can we innovate and how can we be part of a solution that drives a more sustainable outcome? And I think there's a real pride in that um, in, in, the, in the younger part of the industry and, and as the industry progresses, to, to be part of a, a solution that helps us transition. That might be a great transition to, um, you know, a topic I wanted to talk about, thinking about how incumbents are viewing all of your technologies. And Renee, since you kind of started us off there, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the incumbent players are, are viewing your company. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of uh, different um, views out there. Um, there's all you know when you do something new, there's always challenging uh, views, uh, and there's there are always a, a set of stakeholders who are a little bit skeptical uh, and some sometimes critical, um, and that's actually healthy. I think it helps drive uh, purpose and, and innovation. Um, but also, I think the the vast majority, in fact, are pretty welcome to. The opportunity to look at things differently. Um, I think the mining industry as a whole generally is open to innovation far more now than it was even 10 years ago. Uh, so I, from, from what we've found there, we have um, colleagues and, and um, competitors or, or collaborators in both the terrestrial and the seabed space um, and, and they are looking on with interest uh, and I think as we progress down our production line, so as our technology gets closer to production and we're able to form joint ventures and partnerships with some of those existing incumbents, um, the pathway towards um, integrating our technology into existing approaches as well as opening up new spaces, I think is, is something that creates a lot of interest. Uh, so I think it's a, it can potentially be a really collaborative space and, and I really advocate for that. I think it's, it's, a, it's a really great outcome when you can sit down with, with cohorts and, 
have a look at, at how our thinking can progress their outcomes as well as ours. Dave, your company is further along when you're thinking about project development. Love to hear how your interactions with those incumbents have gone. When we think about customers as a technology partner, we really have uh, kind of two categories of customers. First, there's a customer to the project who will actually buy the lithium. And our interactions with, with those customers have been quite exciting because these are some of the you know, fastest growing businesses in the world producing lithium ion batteries for the auto industry. Uh, many of them are seeing 50% annual growth, and they're looking at $10 billion per year of lithium procurement by the end of the decade and really feeling the pressure to secure innovative, low-cost supplies of lithium. Um, now, our direct customers who we work with on the projects uh, is a combination of uh, Greenfield and, and Brownfield project developers. Um, each customer has their unique needs. In some cases, it's very, very focused on water efficiency, where there are strict regulations that have come from the government, and we're there to help them meet those regulations. In other cases, it may be a greenfield project developer where they have a very large resource, but the lithium concentration might be significantly lower than anything that's been developed previously. And so the role that our technology plays in that case is really around technical viability. So um, those are the dynamics that we engage with on customers. Uh, and ultimately, the auto industry is really going to be desperate, uh, you know, currently desperate and increasingly desperate for these lithium supplies. And um, they're starting to step up and, and deploy serious capital into the space. And John, for a company like Stillbright, who's early in its journey, what is the role of customer, particularly at this early stage? Well, today we've mostly been interacting with various copper mines in order to source materials and do preliminary testing at the current lab scale. And I would say what, what makes our process so exciting is we have these very fast reaction rates. And fast reaction rates are, are loved by the industry, and they also correlate to low capex. Uh, some of these projects can be can be billions of dollars in capex. So if you can reduce capex, that's a huge win for the industry. Then our process can also be powered by renewables. Uh, I don't think this is talked about much, but the mining industry is really looking to decarbonize wherever possible. So being powered by renewables helps the industry decarbonize, pro provided that our process is implemented on site. And, and then lastly, the mine sites get really excited if we can potentially extract copper from currently non-viable resources. So it's one thing if they have a feedstock thing that can currently be sent to a smelter for processing, but if they have some feedstock that's currently not viable by that smelting step, then that's when we can really get the customer excited about our process. And we're, we're coming up on time here, so I wanted to close with uh, one, one more question for you all. We talked about really three minerals here, you know, maybe perhaps more, but there are a lot more minerals that are going to be necessary for this uh, energy transition. So I'd love to just go around and, and have you all comment on if you weren't working on your respective mineral or minerals of choice, uh, what mineral would you be looking to address? Um, so John, let's start with you. Yeah, I, I think for me, the answer would probably be cobalt. And there's a few reasons why one cobalt, it, it's so essential for the energy transition much like all of the other minerals we talked about. I know you talked about cobalt a little bit, Renee, but also 
traditional processing with COBOL has a lot of challenges. And, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity to make the processing of COBOL a lot more sustainable. Dave? Beyond lithium, I think one of the most exciting and important supply chains for critical materials is going to be for fusion fuels. Um, I see a huge number of super exciting fusion companies making great progress on new reactors to produce fusion energy. Those reactors need a supply chain that does not exist today. And so I think there's great opportunity in the fusion fuel space and uh, hope to see uh, more startups coming up in that area. Great. That was not an answer I was expecting. Uh, Renee, uh, we'd, we'd love your thoughts as well. Yeah, I think we're really lucky in that the bio extraction or the mineral processing technology that we use can be used on, on pretty much all metals. So we're uh, experimenting with other targets like rare earths uh, and really have that similar approach um, that John referred to where we look at something where the mineral processing technology right now is a bit of a blocker. So there are no obvious solutions or it's really high intensity or it's really high in particular reagents. Uh, so we have a quite a wide breadth of targets in terms of critical minerals where um, obviously cobalt, nickel, copper are our three mains, but rare earths are starting to be of interest to us because our bacteria can target the rare earths in the same way as they target others. And, and that's a little pinch point in the existing uh, flow sheets for rare earths. So anything where pretty much, as John said, where you've got an existing flow sheet that's challenging or that relies on really high inputs that might not be available, that's our target. And I think that's a really um, soft landing for innovations as well, because it's really it's a really easy way to, to have a big impact. Well, I think we're at time here. Thanks for this great discussion, everybody.